Good morning. This morning we're continuing our series on what the Bible says about marriage. Uh, last week we talked about what marriage is for. This week we're going to talk about what a marriage is. And I think these sort of foundational uh, sermons are important. Like these, these sermons early on in the series are important. I um, was just listening to uh, Vody Bakum. He's a preacher. Um, I was just listening to a preacher named Vody Bakum yesterday. And there was a point in his sermon where he said something like, you won't hit what you're not aiming for. And I think that that's really important. Like that's why last week and this week are important. You will not hit what you're, what you're not aiming for. So we really do need to talk about what is marriage for and what is a marriage. And so um, if you're here today and you are married, the things that we learn from God's word throughout this series can apply to the marriage that you're in. If you're here today and you are unmarried, but you intend on being married one day, this can, the, the passages that we learn can apply to your future marriage. And to those of you who would say, I never want to be married, I would say to you, whether you participate in marriage or not, it still greatly affects the society you live in. Is that true? So you get to have opinions about it. Just like people who um, don't drive, like car travel still greatly affects their life, even if they don't drive, right? And so they, they need to know a little bit about it. And I would say similarly, even if you'd say, I don't ever want to be a part of any sort of marriage, um, you still get to have an opinion about it because this greatly affects the world that you live in. Um, so today I want to teach you a verse in the Bible about marriage. Um, it is found in the Old Testament and it is quoted four times in the New Testament. Um, I don't think that there is any verse in the Old Testament on the topic of marriage that is quoted so many times in the New Testament as this one is. Um, so in, in many ways, you could almost say this is the Old Testament verse on marriage. Like when the New Testament people were bringing up the topic of marriage and they thought about what God had said in the past, this was their main go-to verse. Okay, so it's found in Genesis chapter 2, and then it's quoted in Matthew chapter 19, in Mark chapter 10, it's quoted in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it's quoted in Ephesians chapter 5. Over and over again, the Bible uses this phrase. So this morning, what I want to do as I teach it to you is I would like to teach you about three essential marriage qualities. Okay, three essential marriage qualities, union, permanence, and love. And as I talk about them, I'm going to use a Bible passage for each point. So basically, I got three points this morning, union, permanence, and love. And each one, I'm going to talk about a Bible passage. But every Bible passage I use, it's going to have like the same verse in it every time. Okay, so in other words, when we talk about union today, I'm going to, I'm going to teach you from Genesis chapter 2. When we talk about permanence, we're going to talk about the time that Jesus quoted Genesis chapter 2. And when we talk about love, we're going to talk about one of the times that Paul quoted Genesis chapter 2 right? So where are we going to start today? Genesis chapter 2, all right? So that you're going to see it come up over and over again today. So we're going to start with the original quote in Genesis chapter 2. So if you have your Bible with you, you can turn there now. I'm going to start reading to you in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2. That is not the verse. That's just the, the beginning of the paragraph that comes before it. And I want to just give you some context here so you can know the words that were said just before we get to the verse. So Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15, I picked this one because it is review from last week. Last week I read to you verses 15, 16, 17, and 18 of Genesis chapter 2. So I'm, what I'm hoping is as I read this, there'll be some of you here that will be like, oh yeah, 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 like I recognize this, I know this story. Yeah, we just talked about it last week. So here it is, Genesis 2, verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Who is the man? Adam, okay. Do you remember this verse from last week? All right, so, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. Do you remember that from last week? So that's where we left off. So now I'm just going to keep reading, picking up right where we left off last week. So verse 19, so the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And over the man called a living creature, that's what it's, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky and every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found as his complement. Now, those of you that were here last week, remember we talked about the word complement, especially when it's written with an E, it means something like they go together. These two things correspond. If they complement one another, right? The two things are suitable for one another. So Adam here is given the job of naming all these animals and he's naming all the animals. And when he gets to, to it done, there is, there is no one that was like a, a, a match for him, right? He looks at all the animals. And in fact, the animals have matches for each other. Like there's male and female, you know, bluebirds and alligators and hippos and all this stuff, but not one for Adam. So it says, no helper was found as a compliment. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. And then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman. That is something you can do if you're God right? So he did that. And brought her to the man, and the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. So that's, that's the Adam and Eve story. And then this next verse is the verse. That's the stuff that comes. And then you find Genesis 2, 24, the Old Testament marriage verse. Here it is. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. This is the verse that's quoted multiple times in the New Testament. This is the one that when the New Testament people thought about marriage, they thought back to. This is why, or for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. And what's interesting about this verse is it's, um, it's quite a change in direction for Genesis. Like at this point, the story had been about Adam and Eve. And then you get to verse 24, and suddenly it's not. Did you notice that there's like a big shift? The story up to this point was Adam, Adam's in the garden, um, no helper has found as his compliment, he names all the animals, they take a rib, they turn into Eve, like it's all Adam and Eve's story, Adam and Eve's story, until you get to verse 24. And at verse 24, the narrator stops telling the Adam and Eve story and steps out of the story and makes a general observation that's not about Adam and Eve. Did you catch that? Like up to this point, taking the rib, the man said, this one is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman for she was taken out of man. That's Adam talking. He's talking about Eve. Then you get to this verse and it says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother. Well, it's not talking about Adam, right? This guy's not Adam. How do we know that, that the, when as the narrators, how do we know he stopped telling the story and now he's talking about something much more general, okay? Well, first of all, this is why a man leaves his father and mother. Could that be about Adam? No, Adam doesn't have a father and mother in this story. Adam didn't leave his father and mother. He stops talking about Adam here and starts talking about every other man that comes after Adam and every other woman that comes after Eve. So this verse right here is not about the creation of Eve. This verse is about the creation of marriage. So you've got the Adam and Eve story and then you have a pause and now you have this is what marriage is about. And that's the verse that's repeated multiple times in the New Testament. So here's point number one. Point number one is marriage is a union. 
You can see that. That's what the writer of Genesis, as he, as he pauses and talks about the creation of marriage, that's the way he describes it. Marriage is a union. Marriage is a union of two previously not united things. And now they are. You could tell the verse says, a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife. And what happens? They, they become something. What's the thing that they become? One flesh. They become one flesh. So the verse starts out in the plural and then goes singular, right? They is a plural word, right? One flesh, that's a singular unit. It starts off with a man and he's got his mother and father and then he bonds with his wife. Presumably she also has a father and mother, right? So you got a man and a woman, that's two separate units. And then something happens, bonding is the verb that's used. And then when the bonding happens, the two become one thing, one flesh. Well, what does that mean exactly? What does it mean that, the, that a man leaves his father and mother and they become one flesh? I mean, it, it, like what is, what is the Bible actually getting at when it says they become one flesh? Is that, like, is that just a reference to sex? Especially the word flesh. Like it sounds very sexy, right? Like it's like, like is this just a poetic way of describing the intertwining that is a part of the sex act, right? Is this just saying a man eventually leaves his father and mother and has sex with a woman? Is that what this verse is saying? I think the answer to that is yes and no. The reason I say yes is I do think that there are sexual implications in this verse because Paul uses it that way in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. When Paul's talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's talking about sex. He's telling the people not to sleep with uh, temple prostitutes. and And he quotes this verse, and he talks about that, hey, you, don't, you shouldn't unite with her, the temple prostitute, right? Because the two become one flesh. So yes, I think there's sexual implications to this. But my answer, my main answer would be no. I don't think this is only a reference to that because Jesus quotes this passage in Matthew chapter 19. And when Jesus quotes it, he's not referencing sex. Jesus is actually talking about divorce in Matthew chapter 19. And as he talks about divorce, he quotes this passage, and he uses the reasoning of, hey, if they are two and then they became one, then they shouldn't go back to two again. And so his reasoning is, this verse says they're one unit now, which shows that Jesus interpreted this passage not to be simply about the combining of two bodies. Jesus interpreted this passage to be about the combining of two lives. So if that's how Jesus interpreted this passage... That's how I interpret this passage, okay? Like whatever he thought it meant, that's what I think it meant. That's what we do here, okay? If Jesus interprets a passage a certain way, we go, okay, that's the correct way. And that's what he did with this. So I want you to notice the verse. It starts with, a man leaves his father and mother, okay? So there is a family that exists with a father and mother, right? And that man is a part of this family. And then he leaves that family and he bonds with his wife, and I think like, it's just assumed, it doesn't say it, but I think the wife, she has a father and mother also, right? And so now you have two people who grew up in two different families and they leave those families and they now combine to create a new family, a new family that didn't exist before. So you've got to notice that in the verse, the, the verse starts with two families and ends with three, right? At the beginning of the verse, there's a man with his mother and father and it's implied there's a woman with her mother and father, right? So you've got two families at the beginning of the verse. At the end of the verse, there's a third family that came into existence because these two people that came from these families came together and created a new one, and that new one takes priority over the previous ones. Now, you might say, well, how do you know the new one takes priority? I think it's implied with the word leave. 
it says this is why a man leaves his father and mother. It's got to be that the new family takes precedence over the old family or you wouldn't have called it leaving. Because, I mean, the word leave can't mean like complete abandonment. That is not what happens in history. That's not what happens in our lives, right? The idea that a man leaves his father and mother can't mean like absolutely forsaking them. It's, it's, not, it's not as if when we get to our wedding day, any of us look at our parents and go, well, it was nice knowing you. But this is the day we never speak again. Like, no, that's not what happens at a wedding, right? So then what is it saying? It seems to me the passage is just saying the new family takes priority over the old one. Yes, you're still their son. Yes, you're still their daughter. But not as much as you're his wife or her husband. So a union has taken place. Two separate lives have now combined. And if that's true, if it's true that marriage is two separate lives that have now combined, then you can either live in rhythm with that, meaning embrace it, cooperate with it, act like it's true, or you can fight against it, but it'll still be true. It'll just hurt you. But that's the design. That's the way God's made it. So you could just acknowledge and go, okay, this is the way he made it. Or you can go, well, I'm going to try to do my own thing. But it's not going to change the fact that that's the way he made it. I have heard of couples who keep secrets from each other. And it seems to me that keep secrets from each other does not fit with, and they have become one flesh. I've known of couples who live separately from one another. I can remember a couple asking me if I would officiate their wedding when they did not intend to live with each other. That they... They came to me, and I'll change some of the details of the story so nobody figures out who they are. But they lived here in Ocala at one point, and they went away, okay? And he went to college in New Hampshire, and she went to college in Alabama. And then they contacted me, and they said, hey, we're going to be in Ocala for spring break. We're wondering if you would officiate our, our wedding ceremony. And I'm like, oh, and well, what's going to happen after that? And they said, well, he's going to go back to New Hampshire, and she's going to go back to Alabama, and they're going to continue to go to two separate colleges and live separately from each other for the next few years. And I said, no. Like, I, no, I won't officiate that wedding. Like, that's not, like, I don't even believe in that. Like, I'm not going to try, I'm not going to pronounce these two people to be united who then plan on living in separate states for the next few years. I don't even think that's what marriage is. There are people who are married to each other and they attend two different churches. That's obviously not as extreme as living in two different states, but I don't think it's a good idea. I've seen, uh, and you've, you've maybe seen this too, marriages where the people maintain two different sets of possessions, where there's one person that goes, that, that's, that's his boat or that's her car, that's, right, this one's my thing, that's his, that's his vacation home, that's separate from mine, these are my debts to pay off, these are, these, that's not mine, that is his debt to pay off or her debt to pay off, right? I've got my own accounts and he's got his. These are the bills I pay with my accounts. These are the bills that she pays with her accounts. And then one day the kid comes up and says, you know, we got a, um, I need a science project backboard. And, a, and the parents look at each other like, are you going to pay for that out of your money? Or am I going to pay for that out of my money? And I'm just telling you, I think that's bonkers. I just, I just don't even understand that. That's what divorced people do. I, don't, can't, doesn't, I can't even fathom why married people would handle it that way. Now, I get that there are exceptions. Let me go ahead and just say that right now because I can imagine there are some of you even right now that like are thinking of exceptions and you're angry at me 
Okay, well, he's saying he doesn't even know my situation. I, you're right, I don't, okay? And I understand that there are exceptions and you can be there angry with me all you want, but I mean, it's, I don't need to hear what they all are after the sermon, please, okay? I know there's some of you, like, well, I had to keep it a secret. It was his, first, his 50th birthday and I wanted to keep it a secret. It was a surprise party. Like, that's not what I'm talking about, okay? Someone else is gonna go, no, we had to live separate. I was stationed in Syria and a war broke out. There weren't even planes that came in. I get that, I'm not talking about that. Oh, please don't come up to me afterwards and explain, well, it's a separate checking account because there's an insurance policy connected to it. She's not on the insurance policy because of the p- paperwork and the blah. Please don't, please don't come up to me afterwards and tell me all those stories. I, I really can't, I can't. All I'm saying, all I'm saying is this. If marriage is truly a union, then the ideal is for husbands and wives to operate as a unit, as much as is possible, and not as disconnected individuals. When Heidi and I were first married, we were probably married, I don't know, a year or two at this point, and we were invited over to a friend's house, and they were also newly married. I think they had been married maybe about one year. So it's four newlywed people all at a house eating chicken together. Um, and we're sitting there having this meal with them, and I don't remember most of this, what happened this particular day. I remember what the house looked like, I don't remember what we talked about, but there was one particular thing that the husband, the newlywed husband had said, the guy, people that were sitting across the table from us, that, that's, that stuck out in my mind. And I don't even remember what prompted it. Like the, the wife of the guy um, must have said something along the lines of like, hey, well, where is it that you were that day? Or who were you with when that happened? She said some question like that. And he looked at her and he said, I don't think that's any of your business. And Heidi and I were across the table, and on the inside, we were like, okay, like, now, now that was on the inside. On the outside, I'm sure we were just cutting our chicken and (laughs) acting like everything was fine. But on the inside, and I didn't know for sure, I didn't, I checked with her later, but at the time, I'm thinking like, whoa, this is so awkward. I can't believe that just got said. And so we didn't say, probably, maybe we should have said something at the time. Maybe we should have, we did not, but we left that, we left the house and, we, and, and I, again, I didn't know what she thought of it and she didn't know what I thought of it, but we figured out real quick, I don't think the car was even all the way out of their driveway before we were like, did you hear him say, like, it's none of her business? I know, can you believe he said that? And so as we're driving home, I remember we had agreed, like anything that is one of our business is both of our business. All right, point number two. Marriage is permanent. So point number one is marriage is a union. Point number two is marriage is permanent. Or you could say marriage is a permanent union if you want to combine points one and two. Marriage is a permanent union. For that, we go to Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, you're going to see a story where Jesus is teaching on marriage and he quotes Genesis 2.24. But let's go ahead and read the whole story. Matthew 19, starting in verse three. The context is the Pharisees are coming up to Jesus. Pharisees are very familiar with the Old Testament law. They're trying to trap Jesus in his words. And so they come up to him and they ask him about divorce. So this is Matthew 19, verse three. Some Pharisees approached him, that's Jesus, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? So they're the one that bring up the topic. Hey, can we get divorces? Jesus, what's the deal with divorce? Can I, if I have a wife, can I divorce her for any reason? What's lawful? What are we allowed to do? And Jesus responds in verse four with the words, haven't you read 
Now, the fact that he asked him the question, haven't you read, shows that he's about to quote from something that's been written down, right? What's he about to quote from? The Old Testament, okay? Because this is a Jewish rabbi talking to Jewish like, teachers of the law and people who are very familiar with the law. And so when he says, haven't you read, like he didn't, need, he didn't have to say which book it is. Like everybody knows which book is being referred to here, right? When he says, haven't you read, it's, um, I, don't, I don't know if sarcasm is the right word, but it's not a, like he's not really wondering if they've read, like they had read. Like when he says, haven't you read, like they, he knew for sure they had certainly read what he was about to say. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And actually that little phrase, made them male and female, is a quote from Genesis chapter one. So that would be on the first page of the Bible. So he starts with, hey, haven't you read the first page of the book that we all go by? Haven't you, ha have you read the, the very first page where it says that the creator made them male and female? And then he quotes a second one. He says, and he also said, okay, he being he who created, right? So he's, he's quoting God from Genesis. Right? He who created them made the male and female, and he also said, and there's our verse, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they say, Jesus, what's the deal with divorce? And he goes, have you, have you read the first couple of pages of the Bible? Because this is answered on the first couple of pages. You could have figured it out from this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He believed that answered the question. Now he continued to answer it. So after he quotes it, he then gives his interpretation of the passage. Here it is, verse six. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. They're not these two separate entities, right? They're this one unit now. Now, why did he think they are no longer two, but they are now in fact one? Because that's what the passage he quoted said. Like the thing he just quoted, that's what it said. So he's just repeating. Like the passage said, the two became one. So that's what reality is, right? They're, they're not two, they're one. And then he applies it to their life. He says, therefore, so if all that's true, therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. So he says, Genesis chapter two says that they're one, they're not two. And then I want you to notice, who did Jesus believe joins people together in marriage? God, isn't that interesting? Because Genesis 2.24 didn't say that, right? It just says the man will bond. It doesn't really say who is the one that really puts them together. Genesis 2.24 didn't say that, but Jesus did. He, Jesus assumed God is the one that does it. So he says, what God has joined together, man must not separate. This is very interesting reasoning that he's saying to these people who are asking about a divorce, listen, you don't get to do the separating because you're not the one that did the joining. Oh, that is a very powerful thought, and that is something that is very different than what our culture says. Our culture is very, no, that I did this, I can undo this. That, Jesus would say, I don't think you even did it. This is so powerful and so different than what our culture says. I'm going to go ahead and read the rest of the passage. Um... So they say back, this is verse seven. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? So these are people who had read, they had read, right? They had read the Old Testament. So now they quote from Deuteronomy, or at least they refer to Deuteronomy. They say, hey, what about divorce? He goes, no, don't get a divorce. And then they go, well, what about the fact that the Old Testament talks about divorce? Moses had divorce papers. There's whole rules in there about how to do them. So how could it be no divorce when there's stuff in there about divorce? So then Jesus responds, verse eight, he told them, 
Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. He goes, yes, there's stuff in Deuteronomy about divorce. Moses legislated stuff about divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. Sinful humans do sinful things. And so, yes, Moses had legislative reaction to the sinful things that were happening. And he regulated divorce. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. Divorce certificates aren't because God's like, yay, divorce certificates. That's, that's what Moses was doing because people were doing what they weren't supposed to do. It wasn't God's intention that that would happen. It was not like that from the beginning. Verse 9, And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So you can tell he's telling them not to divorce. He's especially saying don't, not, to not marry another. This idea of I'll just ditch her and get another one. No, that's the same thing as adultery. But what you have in verse 9 here is he says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, now these next four words, except for sexual immorality, um, that is uh, like Bible scholars and theologians and people who write books on this stuff, they refer to that as the exception clause. It's a really famous portion of a Bible verse. Okay, the Matthew 19 exception clause. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and then you have except for sexual morality. So I'm, I'm, there are people probably who've preached whole sermons on that, written whole like scholastic papers on that, perhaps whole books have been written on the exception clause. I'm not going to get into a big explanation of it this morning other than to just acknowledge that it's there. Like Jesus said, in generally speaking, don't divorce, and then there seems to be an exception related to sexual morality. But the fact that he's generally saying marriage is permanent is obvious by the way that the disciples react to it. Look at the next verse, verse 10. His disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Can you believe that they said that out loud? I mean, this is just shocking to me. I, this is the way I picture it. So Jesus is standing there. The Pharisees come up. They're about to ask questions. I'm guessing the disciples are all standing there going like, yeah, we agree with him, whatever he says. Okay, so whatever questions you have, like whatever he says, put us down for that. Like we agree with him. And then they ask their question about divorce. And he's like, yeah, yeah, don't get those. And then the disciples went, what? That's the answer? If this is the way it is between a man and a woman, goodness, if anyone had told him, we got to stick with her for life. That's what, did I, did we hear you right? We got to stick with her for life because if we had known that, we wouldn't have gotten married, right? That's what they're saying here. If this is the relationship with a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. I hope their wives weren't around when they said that. They said that out loud. That'd be an awkward donkey ride home, wouldn't it have been? So then Jesus responds, and he's told them, this is verse 11, not everyone can accept this saying, okay? This whole like, well, just don't get married. Just, oh, who needs women? No, not everybody can accept this. I think that is what he's saying there, but only those for who it's been given to. I think Jesus assumed some of the stuff we learned last week, which is that sex is for marriage. It's for married people. And he's saying, not everyone's not supposed to have these unions. You can't just say, well, why don't just everybody stay away from everybody? No, not everyone can accept this saying, but only those whose it's been given to. So then he says this, kind of unusual. He says, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. So he seems to be saying something similar to what Paul said last week, like, yeah, that's fine. You can be single and celibate, but that's not everybody's, that's not everybody's jam, right? There are, and so then he refers to this thing called eunuchs, 
which um, I believe the eunuchs were males only. And so he's talking to his male disciples, so it makes sense that he would use that as his illustration. So he talks about eunuchs. Eunuchs would be men who were castrated, so they're missing some of their sexual parts, and they're not able to um, like have a sexual relationship with anyone. And he refers to three different categories. He says there are eunuchs who were born that way, so I think he's saying there's some people that were born with like birth defects and they're not ever going to have a sexual relationship with someone because they're not capable of it, never have been. Then he says, there are eunuchs who, have, um, who were made by men. This, I think, happened way more back then than it did now, than it does now. Um, that there would be people who, I think against their will, would be castrated so that they would be better for whatever job the king had for them. Like if you're a king and you want some men to be in charge of the, the queen's section of the palace... You want to make sure that the people that are in charge of the queen's area have like a 0% chance of doing anything sexual with your queen. So you just say like, ah, we got to get rid of that stuff. Okay. And it was just, it was a brutal time. So there are eunuchs that were made by men and there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. I don't know that that's physical or not, but it could very well be that um, physically or maybe just... um, like spiritually speaking, like these are people who took like a vow of celibacy. I'm going to be single. I'm not going to be with anyone. I'm just going to focus on doing God's will with my life. And he said, that's fine. Go for that. Let anyone accept this who can, but, but not everybody can. Not everybody's going to do that. So when you look at the passage, that's the whole passage. It moves on to another story after that. The gist of this passage, whether you're looking at the fact that he quotes from Genesis 2, whether you're looking at the fact that he says they are no longer two but one, What God has joined together, man must not separate. When he says whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, or even the disciples responding to, well, if this is the way it is, it's better not to marry. Like the gist of this passage is that marriage is supposed to be a permanent union. And then point number three is that marriage should be characterized by love. Marriage should be characterized by love. I don't even know if that was obvious always in um, all cultures or this one that it was written in, but for this one, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to see where the Apostle Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Paul is talking about marriage to the Ephesian Christians, and he says this. This is verse 28. He says, In the same way, husbands are to love their wives, but this is interesting. He doesn't say just say love your wife. He says they're to love their wives as their own bodies. That there's a connection between husband and wife in such a way that the the husband should love his wife the way he loves his own body. And then, this is such an interesting sentence, he says, he who loves his wife loves himself. Paul thought the connection between a, a husband and a wife was so intense that when the man loves his wife, it's like loving him right? Like we are one unit. When I love you, it's like loving me. Like loving you is like, I'm to treat you the way I treat myself. I'm to love you the way I love my own body because we're connected. And to love you is to love me. We're, we're a unit together. Verse 29, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it. Just as Christ does for the church. This is a metaphor that you see a lot in this, in this chapter where he's taking this husband and wife love and he's comparing it with Jesus Christ's love for his church just as Christ does for the church. And then look at this, since we are members of his body. So the we there is the church. Church is not a building, church is the people of God. And he's saying, there's the, <laughs> married love is supposed to be like the love that Jesus Christ has for his church, his people. And the kind of love that Jesus has for his people is such a unifying love <laughs> that we are considered Members of his body. 
which kind of fits with the whole like husbands are to love their wives as their body. Jesus loves us like we're his own body. In fact, multiple times in the New Testament, this is one of them, but there's many other times, the, the people of God are called the body of Christ. That's a really intense combination, right? The connection between Christ is so close that we are called his body. We are united to him. That when Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again and saved us, he gives us this love that brings us to himself in such a way that we're united to him. And he cares for us and provides for us like we are connected to him the way a head is connected to a body. And then Paul sees that same connection between a husband and a wife and says, yeah, he's supposed to love her like his own body. Well, where did he get that idea of union from, that they are that connected? Where did, where did Paul get that from? Genesis 2, 24. How do you know that, Mario? Because that's the verse he quotes right after he says all this. Just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul believed that this passage from Genesis described a union between a husband and wife that made marriage relationships comparable to the relationship Jesus has with his church. And he believed that this verse pointed husbands in particular in the direction of loving their wives the way that they love themselves. That's the kind of love we're supposed to have for our wives, men. So if I just try to sum up the whole sermon, okay, this idea of two becomes one is something we see multiple times in the Bible. And the phrase is used to show us that marriage is a permanent union that should be characterized by sacrificial love. If you're here today and you're married, you should try to shape your marriage into such a union. If you're here today and you are unmarried, you should start planning to have that kind of marriage one day. And if you're here today and you go, I'm not married, I never plan to marry, that's fine. I hope that you will internalize this truth and even hold it up for people to see. That this is the picture that God paints of marriage and it should affect our world. Let's pray. God, thank you for this truth. Thank you for repeating yourself. That this would be said over and over again. We thank you for it. I thank you for Moses having it in Genesis. I thank you for Jesus like interpreting it for us. I was talking to somebody this week that I said to them, I don't even know if I'd be like so certain as to what this verse means if it weren't for the way Jesus quoted it. So I thank you for that. I pray that you'd help us to live the way that you want us to live. I, I pray for people who are divorced in this room in particular. I, I I pray that you would help them to, first of all, I pray that they would, if they do not already know, that they would know the gospel and that they would apply the gospel to their lives. And then I pray that you would give them discernment to know whatever the next step is for them. And I pray that same thing for the married people. There are probably some of us in this room that we need to remember the gospel and we need to then remember what, or, or, or ask you for the wisdom and the discernment to know what the next step is for us. And I assume that applies to single people as well. And so we ask for your discernment in their life that they would know what the next step is. But I pray you'd help us to, to, to follow after your word, to, to cooperate with your design and not fight against it. Please help us not fight against that which you've made. Please help us. 
We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for your death on the cross and rising again and the promise to make all things new. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.